This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. No one has to feel by themselves if there's something out there that's preventing you being the person that you want to be, if there's something that's stopping you from achieving your goals or your wants, or is getting in the way of your happiness. They really don't. Now just bearing in mind how difficult the past two years have been for us all, it's understandable then that many of us may be finding some things difficult. But we're each unique, and it might not just be the fallout from COVID that's doing this, because anything can come along and weigh on you heavily. So if I've struck a chord here, then maybe BetterHelp can help you. What BetterHelp offers is a worldwide, much more affordable service than any traditional offline counselling that assesses the issues you may be facing and calling on its broad range of expertise available. Specialists in a vast range of issues, BetterHelp matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist, one selected to best suit your needs for professional counselling. Within 24 hours, you can be communicating in a safe and confidential online environment with your personal counsellor, someone whom you can schedule weekly phone or video sessions with, whom you can message anytime you want or feel, and from whom you can expect back thoughtful, timely, and most importantly, helpful responses. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, You'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. Hello all and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast where each time around from my spare room up in North Wales, myself and the world's smallest cow, Peaks, have sought out some of the grimmest, more unfamiliar and often scarcely believable tales of true crime that we've scoured the UK and Ireland looking for to bring for your listening. I'm of course as ever Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, Peaks is asleep at my feet and most importantly, you guys have joined us, or else it's pretty lonely and pretty pointless here. It's amazing to have you all joining us today, which we thank you so kindly for doing so, and hope that as you have, then you and all those closest to you are all good, all safe, and all well. So I'm almost back to match fitness here now as we open up Series 7 of The Enthusiast, and massive thanks go out to all those who've gotten in touch concerning our opening tale of the series, The Creature That Stalked the Cobbles, The Horrific Crimes of Andrew Longmire. See what I meant when I said he could have fitted into any Monsters of episode in any series, couldn't he? But where'd you put him? 
I could think of a few places he should be put, granted, but that really isn't helpful here and probably shouldn't say anyway. The feedback and shares of the episodes have been massively appreciated, folks. As I always say, you guys rule. Enthusiast fans are the best there is, no question. Thanks also go out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs going out this time around to new supporters Gemma Cullen, Jane Hunt, Andrew Herworth, Lucy Wilde, Julia Hendy, Anne Wilde, Pablo Nero, Kaylee, Canadian Cater Tot, Rhea Rafalski, Lee Waters and Michelle Wildman, plus Olivia Q, who has opted to annually support the show. Now any listeners out there fancying can join this kind bunch and support the show for yourselves. Like Daredevil watching porn, it's not hard at all. You can just simply head over to the ever-present link in the episode show notes and go from there. Or you can seek out the show over on Patreon. It's got the same logo, title, you'll find it easy, boom, Robert's your mother's brother. Now quicker than a Sue Gray report getting doctored, uh, written, excuse me, you can be hearing the tales behind bonus episodes such as Disfigured, An Offering to the Angels, Obsession by the Sea, or Strange Tales from the South, to name just a couple of them. With the latest one coming very soon, or you may even be waiting for some show swag coming from me as well, all cheaper than a nest full of birds. This time around on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, there comes a tale that, like most of what I try to cover here, isn't overall a largely familiar one, although for some, including those affected, they will undoubtedly remember it vividly. It will never have left them. It's a tale that very narrowly missed out on inclusion in the last series of the show. I think back at the time I did say that. I certainly have hinted to it in the review of the previous series. But there isn't any need for hints now, of course, because it's a tale that's coming to you right this episode. For it, we head off back once again to the late 1980s and right up to the north of England, the county of Tyne and Weir, to hear of the exploits of an individual who one pleasant Sunday morning, brought havoc, terror and violence to an area of North Tyneside that left countless people scarred from it, having to try and move on with their lives, and for one family, with a massive, missing and irreplaceable piece. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled Shooter on a Sunday Morning. For our episode, as I said, we head back to 1989 and up to the northeast of England to the area of North Tyneside in the county of Tyne and Weir. Now, a couple of stats concerning here. See, I told you, business as usual. It's an area just to the east of the city of Newcastle upon Tyne. As I've described the northeast before here on the show when we featured a case up there, it's well known for being so cold you could open a tin with your nipples, and the area of North Tyneside we're focusing on, the town of Whitley Bay, can boast famous people springing from this, such as musicians Sam Fender and guitarist from the Animals, Hilton Valentine, fabulous name or what, eh? Former chief news correspondent for the BBC, Kate Aidy, who's been in more war zones than John Rambo. TV comedy writer Ian Lafrenet, who's responsible for co-writing with his writing partner Dick Clement, TV gold such as Afida Saint Pet and Porridge. And actress Andrea Riseborough, 
Now, my fave stats are that many scenes from classic UK teen show Biker Grove were filmed there, which I couldn't believe ran for 17 years, because the only bit I remember from it really was Megamind getting blinded by a paintball. And that another former resident and one-time mayor, Gladstone Adams, is one of several people claimed to have invented the windscreen wiper, and certainly one who filed an early patent for it, although his design was never actually manufactured. I bet you'll all sleep better tonight knowing that, won't you? Now, part of Whitley Bay today is the former village of Monk Seaton, a designated conservation area that boasts just shy of 20,000 residents. It reportedly retains much of the character it had in the 19th century, and has a few pubs within it, several parks and pitches, and is generally considered a nice place to live, with a very strong sense of community there. It's fair to say it was, up until 1989 anyway, the kind of place where nothing ever happens, and if something does, then it's remarked upon for weeks, months, even years afterwards. The events of the final minutes of the morning of Sunday the 30th of April 1989 certainly is an example of what I'm describing. In fact, it must be the best example there is, for those events not only catapulted the quiet village into the national spotlight, they also brought it the darkest day in its history. Now I must just add in here before we crack on that through researching the tale there are several contradicting reports concerning the order in which the events I will be relaying occurred and indeed it may not ever be definitively known in which exact order they did occur that day. They take place in a relatively compact area of Monk Seaton and have tried to portray them in as best order as I can glean from the consensus of information. That April Sunday Bank holiday weekend had begun as just a normal day in the area. Families were going about their regular weekend routines, you know, children out playing in the streets, people cutting their lawns, washing the car or heading off to buy the morning papers, stopping and chatting to neighbours, several from the village were going to church and several sporting events were underway. It was approaching midday when the beige Ford Escort came to a halt in Monk Seaton's Pikeley Road just over a mile from where it had set off, the Wentworth Gardens area of Wellfield, the next village along from Monk Seaton, and its driver parked neatly, turned off the ignition, and gathered together the items he'd loaded into the car just a few minutes before. He spent some time adjusting one of the items to fit around himself, fastened another one of them securely to his thigh, and then, getting out of the driver's side whilst carrying the bulky, heavy object that Michael had specifically told him to take, locked the car door and checked his watch. It was 11.55am on that bright Sunday morning as the young ponytailed man, dressed all in black, complete with dark glasses, then turned and walked off along the tree-lined street. About a minute later, a motorist who'd just come into Pikeley Road from the adjoining Brantwood Avenue, 43-year-old Judith Rhodes, noticed a figure dressed entirely in black walking towards her, but it took her another second or two to register the fact that he had stopped and he was now pointing something at her car. It took yet another second for it to register to Judith that the object he was pointing was a double-barreled shotgun. Without hesitation, the dark-clad figure then fired, 
and the shot shattered the windscreen of her car, causing her to stop and take refuge underneath the dashboard of the vehicle. He fired once more, this time leaving Judith's hand injured by pellets and broken glass. As in terror, she attempted to drive the vehicle away, afraid that the man would come and fire at her once more, this time from closer range. She managed to move the vehicle, at which indeed he did fire. Judith later recalled, I ducked down as I drove past him and he fired again at the side of the car. By some miracle, it hit the pillar between the two side windows. I didn't have time to react really. It all just seemed to happen in a split second. As the car stalled a short distance up the road, Judith managed to make it out of the vehicle and ran to the sanctuary of a nearby house. Seemingly having lost interest in his target, almost in a trance was how he was described later, the man then walked calmly away and turned up into West Avenue. Having heard the sound of gunfire, neighbours Lorraine Noble and Frank Roberts, who were at the time chatting over Lorraine's garden gate, barely had enough time to say to each other, what the bloody hell was that? As you would do, and they spotted the figure of the shooter approaching them. They both registered the shotgun as he raised it to fire at them, and as Frank threw himself to the ground, injuring his left leg and arm as he did, Lorraine attempted to flee inside the house. Now whilst the shot missed Frank, several pellets from the blast of both barrels struck Lorraine in the face and the hand she had raised instinctively to protect herself, blowing her backwards against the front door and seriously injuring her. Without even stopping to take another shot at the pair, the shooter walked off down the street, reloading, leaving Frank to flee indoors to raise the alarm and Lorraine to get inside and take sanctuary. Once the alarm had been raised, Frank then headed upstairs and began taking photographs of the scene, which reportedly he was to capture several aspects of, because the shooter was by no means finished for that day. As he then headed from West Avenue into where Monk Seaton's East Avenue adjoins Windsor Road, he stopped and fired both barrels of the shotgun at Joan and James Kernahan and their neighbour William Dack, who were all shot as they stood chatting in the street. The shot missed James and William, but it did strike Joan, injuring her in the arm, shoulder and face, before the shooter calmly continued along Windsor Road. At the same time, approaching Windsor Road from the opposite direction, having just walked up Ashbrook whilst delivering church leaflets on his route back to his home in Uplands, was 41-year-old father of two and manager with British Telecom, Kenneth McIntosh. A regular, highly involved churchgoer and committed Christian, Ken had just as always attended the morning service at the town's Methodist church, and whilst his wife Pam had driven back home, offering two of their elderly neighbours a lift back, Ken adopted to walk back that pleasant morning, thinking he would use the walk to deliver some church newsletters as he did so. It was the helpful, involved kind of person that Ken was. Just as he approached the corner of Windsor Road, Ken was confronted by what must have been a bewildering, frightening sight. He almost bumped straight into a figure dressed all in black, armed with a shotgun, who Ken could at that time surely not have had time to register, was responsible for the multiple gunshots he undoubtedly had heard as he walked back from church. 
Once he registered that not only was it a double-barreled shotgun that the figure held, but that instinctively he knew he meant him harm, Ken turned to flee. As he turned, the figure opened fire, both barrels striking Ken in the back. As he was thrown forward, gravely wounded, Ken managed to turn over and reached up to appeal to the approaching figure to help him. He was said to have begged for his life as he watched the figure reload the shotgun, taking two cartridges from the filled cartridge belt he wore slung around him. Ignoring his pleas, instead, Ken was told by the shooter, No, it's your day to die. From close range, he then fired a further two shots into the chest of the helpless Ken McIntosh, killing him almost instantly. Ken's murder had been witnessed by 14-year-old Nicholas Jackson, who had watched the terrifying scene unfold from the bedroom window of his home. He described the day after the shootings. I thought it was a car backfiring and I went to the window. He shot him from quite a distance and then walked up to him and it looked like he was shooting him on the ground. He then walked along quite normally with his gun in the air. I was terrified and dived for cover when I realised what had happened. Seconds later, a resident of Ashbrook, 38-year-old kitchen salesman Robert Wilson, having heard the sounds, looked out of his front door to see what the commotion he had just heard was all about. He described years later. I presumed the plumber who lived on the corner had blown something up. I went and looked, and that's when I saw a man walking towards me in the middle of the road. I turned to walk back into the house, and that's when I heard the click of him loading the gun. I turned to look back at him, and saw that he was pointing a gun at me. He fired at me, hitting my back and my face. It threw me against the car, and suddenly I was covered in blood. The two shots that Robert had been struck by had split into 60 fragments, 60 pellets that embedded themselves all over the left side of his head and his body. As the shooter stalked off down Ashbrook, the severely injured Robert headed back inside the house to raise the alarm. He recalled, After being shot, I pulled myself up to the mirror to check that I still had a face. While my face was covered in blood, I was still alive. I could still hear him firing shots nearby, so I knew I needed to find Leslie. It was then that Robert ran back outside to look for his partner, Leslie Pugh, who was out walking the dog at the time, and as he did so, he came across the gunman's horrific handiwork of just a moment or two before. Robert went on. I ran round the corner and saw the body of a man in the middle of the road. He was wearing a brown leather jacket and lying in a pool of blood. I knew he was dead from the amount of blood on the road. Robert would later find out that this was the body of churchgoer Kenneth McIntosh. Now something like that, it must just be simply terrifying and bewildering rolled into one, mustn't it? Especially having the fear that your loved one is out there somewhere at the time, and having the awful feeling, could she be next? Thankfully though, as Robert continued up Windsor Road, he saw Leslie and their dog approaching him unharmed. Leslie recalled, I heard Bob screaming, Run, run, there's a man with a gun. I could hear a siren and then I saw Bob's shirt soaked in blood. We ran to a nearby house and banged on the door. 
I kept saying, there's a man with a gun, to the woman who answered. And she said, can you hold on a minute, love? I'm in my dressing gown. She then let the couple into the safety of her home, where they tended to Robert's wounds whilst awaiting an ambulance. Of the 60 pellets that had entered Robert's body, 50 of them were later unable to be surgically removed, so deeply were they embedded in him. Many years later, on the anniversary of the shooting, Robert told the Sun newspaper online with a slight hint of gallows humour. It was a very strange day that was. The nurses at the hospital had never seen shotgun wounds before, and they all came to look at me. I looked like a human pepper pot, and my dog got to ride in an ambulance. That had never happened before. For several years afterwards, so much shrapnel had been left in his body that he would set off airport metal detectors whenever he passed through them, to the point where he used to carry newspaper cuttings about the monk's eating shootings that he and his wounds were pictured in to be able to explain why. Meanwhile, after shooting Robert, the shooter had continued walking down Ashbrook and seconds later heard a car heading towards him, driven by the then 30-year-old Roy Brown, a construction industry manager who was on his way to pick up his wife and young son from the church service they'd attended. As he approached the quiet residential junction where Back Lane meets Ashbrook, Roy noticed a man walking in the middle of the road. In an interview decades later, recalling that fateful day, Roy said, I saw a man in the middle of the road all dressed in black, sunglasses on, and wearing a black jacket. As I got closer, I thought he was going to cross the road, but then all of a sudden, he raised a gun and pointed it at my windscreen. Roy instinctively ducked and put his head onto the passenger seat before hitting the accelerator and steering the car in what he thought was the right direction to escape the shooter. He continued, As I was diving down onto the seat, the first shot came through the driver's door window. It was a massive explosion, a really loud bang. My hand was cut from the shattered glass and pellets wounded my forearm whilst other stray pellets hit me on the side of the head. Roy had managed to drive past the shooter, but then crashed the car into the garden wall of a house further up the street. Exiting the vehicle, he spotted a nearby open garage of a house that he ran into, but as he tried it, the door through from the garage to the kitchen of the house was locked, and he could hear panicked sounding voices coming from inside. He continued, I didn't want to draw attention to myself and start banging on doors as I thought this would alert the shooter to my location. I cautiously approached the edge of the garage to establish where he was and I saw him standing looking into my car before turning and walking away. My head was ringing, sore and numb. I then ran up to the junction and a girl came up in a blue car. I asked her to reverse her car and make sure no more vehicles were able to drive up the street so no one else could get hurt. I then asked her if I still had a face because of the stinging sensation and numbness on the right side of my head where I'd been shot. Unreal, eh? Now it goes without saying that you would never for a second forget something like that happening to you. Not for a second, however much you may even want to try and put something like that behind you, you just couldn't, could you? Even three decades after the events, 
Roy was to admit that certain situations that may occur still triggered memories of the gunman's rampage within him, saying, For example, if I pass kids playing in the street with toy guns and they pretend to shoot at me or at the car, it makes me think back and I know it's always going to be with me. After walking away from Roy's car, the shooter had headed back onto Ashbrook where he fired a shot at the upstairs bedroom window of Kathleen Lynch, who was leaning out of it looking to see what the commotion was. Pellet shattered the window, injuring Kathleen in the shoulder as she ducked for cover. He then made his way back onto Pikeley Road, where just 10 minutes before he'd parked his car, before heading off here and onto Eastfield Avenue. Having just cycled onto here off Pikeley Road was 39-year-old chemist Brian Toms, who spotted the figure walking up the road and shouted at him, Don't be so bloody stupid. The response that Brian got for this rebuke was the shooter turning and blasting him with both barrels in the chest, knocking Brian off the saddle of his bike. The shooter then ignored him further and carried on walking along the road, allowing Brian who had grave injuries to his chest, arm, leg and back, to crawl to the sanctuary of a nearby house. Rushed to North Tyneside General Hospital, it was found that the force of the blast had shattered an artery in Brian's chest and he required immediate emergency surgery to stem the internal bleeding he had, plus a further operation when one of his lungs collapsed. Made a stern stuff though, he spent nine days in Newcastle's Freeman Hospital, where he was transferred to, before a further two months recovering at home, and when he was able to go out, a further two months of physical therapy to improve his mobility and dexterity. Still, although he was able to return to work some four months after the shooting, he was ultimately left with only partial feeling and mobility in his hand and leg. Having to drive around Brian Tom's abandoned bicycle on Eastfield Avenue were the unsuspecting Bergen family, 41-year-old Frozen Food Company director Peter, his 43-year-old wife Jean, and the couple's 14-year-old daughter Nicola, who were on their way to collect the Sunday newspapers, and as they did so, found themselves driving right into the path of the black-clad shooter. As they passed, he opened fire on their vehicle with both barrels from close range, seriously injuring Peter and scarring Jean, although Nicola was to escape physically unharmed, though left in shock. Despite having a serious wound to his left arm, Peter managed to pull the car to safety in neighbouring Woodley Road and flee in their Ford Granada. Strangers then rushed the family into their house, where Peter collapsed from blood loss. Peter was to undergo two operations to save his arm and spent a total of 19 days in North Tyneside General Hospital, followed by three months of daily trips to hospital as a physiotherapy outpatient in an effort to bring his arm back into use. He was to require a further operation to remove shrapnel from his left hand and was for years afterwards to be treated for mobility only to be permanently left with partial loss of feeling in his left hand and fingers. Jean, meanwhile, had been hit in the chest with a spray of ricocheting pellets, and although the injury was enough to leave scar into her, it was not severe 
and she was released from hospital later that same evening. But for a while afterwards, the family was left struggling to begin to come to terms with what had happened, though they did eventually. By the 20th anniversary of the shooting, the family was still living in their home in Monk Seaton's Westfield Avenue, and Peter recalled, You never forget what happened. No one from round here ever will. It was horrible, terrible. Afterwards, I felt bitter and angry. It was just something that happened to me. I hadn't put myself in danger. But time is a great healer, and the support we got was amazing. When something evil like that happens, you realise there are more good people in the world than bad. Now, when people see the scars on my arm, sometimes they ask, and I don't mind telling them, explaining what happened. There was a time when I did, but we've got on with our lives. His wife Jean added, When the first shots were fired, you didn't know what to think, you just panicked and adrenaline took over. Straight after it happened, you didn't want to leave the house. It affected your confidence. You didn't want to go out. I'd feel uneasy sitting on the metro. But gradually, it got better. We had children. We had to get on with our lives. Our daughter was only 14. We had to make sure she was okay. But we made it. It's a wonderful community. And we've got through it. Meanwhile, that Sunday morning, the congregation at St Andrew's United Reformed Church further along Eastfield Road were just leaving after a Sunday service when they became aware that all was not right outside the church doors. Church elder Paul Hartley was there that day and recalled years later, We were having a normal Sunday service. After the service ended, the doors were opened. I don't remember exactly what happened, but some people ran into the church to get away because they said they'd seen a fellow with a gun. Everybody who had left was brought back in and we locked the door. I remember looking out the side entrance down the street and I saw him walking down the street carrying a gun. He was walking purposely. It was really surreal. I just don't think we could believe it. It was so unusual. Moments before this, pensioner Vera Burrows had come face to face with a killer at her door on Eastfield Avenue when she'd heard the commotion and had come outside to find out the cause of it. Spotting the ponytailed man in black, although not at first registering that he had a double-barreled shotgun with him, she asked him what he was doing, saying, What the hell is going on? It's me, the shooter replied. I'm killing people. I'm going to kill you. He aimed the shotgun at the elderly woman, and then, lowering the gun, said, as if having a change of heart, Oh, you're old. I won't kill you, before he then walked away and turned up into Woodley Road. It's good of him, that, eh? Once here in Woodley Road, he fired on a car being driven by pensioner Ernest Carter, causing it to spin out of control as Ernest wrestled with the wheel and to crash into a wall. As Ernest fled from the shooter to the safety of the house of the wall he'd crashed into, pellets raked the back of his legs. The shooter then shot at 64-year-old Kathleen Miley as she walked home from church, injuring her in the chest and the thigh, whilst pellets also hit her friend William Reynolds in the back and the neck. Widow Jean Miller, who lived just up from here on Brantwood Avenue, and who had at the time been mowing her lawn so had not heard any of the shots, was then shot at by the gunman, 
hitting her in the left arm and the abdomen and blowing her backwards across the garden before stalking on back onto Pikeley Road where just minutes before he'd begun his trail of carnage. Jean was to spend 16 days in hospital as a result, requiring three operations to save her left arm, which she ultimately permanently lost most of the use and feeling in. She recalled later, I heard nothing because I had the mower going, and then I stopped and bent down to pick something up. I was bending down and heard someone speak. I stood up, and it was him, and I thought to myself, he's going to shoot me. I remember feeling pretty awful and lying in the garden, shouting for help and waiting for someone to come, and I remember going in the ambulance. After that, I can't remember anything for a couple of days. My daughter said that one of the doctors had said I was lucky to be alive. Meanwhile, by now, perhaps because he was almost out of ammunition, or perhaps his bloodlust was now sated, perhaps Michael had told him enough was enough, the shooter then returned to where he'd parked his Ford Escort, calmly unlocked it, got in, placed the shotgun on the seat next to him, and drove off out of Monkseaton, leaving behind an almost indescribable, unbelievable trail of carnage in the half a mile that he'd rampaged around. The whole spree had lasted less than 20 minutes. Now plenty of witnesses had seen the bloodshed and horror I've just described occur at the time and were able to pass to police officers who arrived at the scene within minutes of the first shot occurring, details of the shooter and of the vehicle that the shooter had left the scene in. Acting Police Sergeant Danny Herdman was on duty that morning in an unmarked police car and had reports of the mass shooting come over the radio as he was patrolling the Whitley Bay area complete with an all-units broadcast to be on the lookout for a beige-coloured Ford Escort. Sure enough, what drove past him in the opposite direction as soon as he'd heard this message? Of course. As soon as he was able to turn the vehicle around, Sergeant Herdman sped off after the vehicle he'd seen, and within moments had caught up to it, finding it parked at the Whitley Bay seafront. Pulling up alongside it, Sergeant Herdman noticed the driver of the Ford Escort exit the vehicle, minus his weapon, and acting instinctively, immediately pounced and overpowered the shooter, putting him over the bonnet of the vehicle and handcuffing him. When he placed him into the rear of the police vehicle, Sergeant Herdman noticed that the ammunition belt that the man had slung around him still had five cartridges remaining in it, as well as a large hunting knife that the black figure had strapped to his leg. In May 1990, Sergeant Herdman was honoured with a Tony Tear Memorial Trophy for his courage in arresting the shooter. And if that's not a pinnacle enough to put next to your pointless trophy on the mantelpiece, pointless trophies I always think are a bit jip myself, he also received a Queen's Commendation that October. The man arrested, the individual responsible for such bloodshed, which horrifically, although amazingly really, had left one person dead but another 16 injured, was 22-year-old Robert James Sartin, a civil servant who worked for the Department of Social Security in Blythe, and who lived with his mother and father, Brian and Jean Sartin, in the Wentworth Gardens area of Wellfield, 
the next village along from Monkseaton. In custody, Sartin made no attempt to deny his rampage, but could neither offer any explanation at the time for his actions. An extract from the statement taken from him during his initial police interview reads, I know I was arrested because I shot people, but I wasn't thinking about it. I don't feel anything for them now. I remember hearing people scream. I wasn't bothered if I hit them. I was not taking proper aim at anybody. Every time I fired, I think I was shooting both barrels. The cartridges would just eject and I'd put in the next ones. It was as if it was not me inside myself. Now, the fact that there was just one fatality through Sartin's rampage, unbelievably, would suggest that he was indeed firing indiscriminately for the most part, apart from his cold-blooded execution at point-blank range of Ken McIntosh. When asked about this, Sartin said in his statement, It was like something said, shoot him, so I pointed the gun from the opposite side of the road and shot him. Something made me stop. I looked at him and he was saying, help me. For some reason I said, no, it's your day to die. It was as if someone else was saying it. I wasn't really thinking about it. I'm not sure why I shot him. I wasn't really paying attention. Chilling, eh? He offered the statement as cold and as matter of fact as anything. His heartbroken parents, who earlier that morning had left Monkseaton to visit friends of theirs at a Yorkshire caravan site, were traced and headed to the police station as soon as possible, where they were allowed to see their son in the custody suite for a short time that Sunday, and again on the Monday, following charges being brought, and ahead of his court appearance the following morning. Two days after the shootings, Brian Sartin was to tell assembled members of the press as he and his wife stood tearfully outside their semi-detached home. It's as if there are two people down there. There is our gentle, quiet son who loves kids, loves animals and loves people. He's just so gentle. Then there's another son sitting down there who doesn't know what it is all about. He was utterly distant. He just would not look at us. He would just stare at the floor and we would just hold his hand. There was utter numbness, nothing. We've seen him since, and he is talking to us, but he's so remote. You just cannot explain it. He's not aggressive. He's never had a scrap in his life. He's never been aggressive to anybody. It is completely alien. Earlier that same day, Tuesday the 2nd of May, Robert James Sarton had appeared in North Shields Magistrates Court, charged with the murder of 41-year-old Kenneth McIntosh. Wearing a black sweater with white horizontal stripes, a grey dark-striped shirt and light grey trousers, Sartin smiled at gathered press photographers as he was brought out of the van to face North Shields magistrates, and during the seven-minute court hearing, at which he made no plea and spoke only twice to confirm his name and address, showed no emotion as he was remanded into custody by senior magistrate Tom McNally. As he was being led back to the van which would take him to Durham Prison, awaiting his next court appearance, Sartin even offered photographers the thumbs-up gesture. Meanwhile, as the 14 injured were treated in hospital, as we've said, some of them requiring serious and complex operations for the life-changing injuries they'd received, 
and with one family trying to begin to come to terms with the great gaping hole that had been bestowed upon their lives so cruelly and brutally, the horror of what had happened that Sunday in the quiet northeast town began to sink in amongst residents. But it was difficult because they could scarcely believe something so terrible had and had not been inflicted by an obvious gibbering and slavering maniac, but by a smartly precision-dressed individual who fired without rush and without emotion. One resident who had witnessed Sartin stalking around the Monk Seaton estate, 40-year-old Jane Boyd, said later, I've never seen anyone so calm and totally in control. He was like a robot. Is that perhaps more chilling, do you think? Another Monk Seaton resident, graphic designer Dave Shoulder, who lived on Windsor Road, later described how he had returned home only moments after Mr. McIntosh was gunned down to find a state of confusion. He explained, I'd nipped out to get the papers, and then on the way back, there was a policeman standing at the top of the street. He said, Sorry, you can't go down there. I explained I had to get home, and he said, Well, keep your head down. It was just totally and utterly surreal. Monk Seaton is the last place that you would expect a shooting. You just wouldn't think it would happen. Sadly, it can happen anywhere, can't it? As events that we've seen in the past show. Not knowing at the time what was going on, but determined to get home to his partner and two-month-old daughter, Nicola, Dave walked back to his house. But as he did, he saw Mr. McIntosh lying outside. He recalled, I think Sartin had moved on by that time, so I basically kept my head down and got back to my house. Unfortunately, Mr. McIntosh was shot dead in front of my gate, and he was lying there slumped on one of the cars, but I didn't know he was dead at the time. The police hadn't told me what was going on. I don't think they knew what was going on at that point, because it had just happened. I thought I had better get inside. I just wanted to get in and make sure everyone was all right. My partner had seen him with a gun and was trying to hide our daughter. She'd taken the baby and was just hiding upstairs. It transpired that Dave's partner had indeed seen Sartin on the street carrying his gun and out of fear had taken baby Nicola upstairs in a bid to hide out of harm's way. Also witnessing the horrendous events that day was then nine-year-old Andrew Blackhall, who years later recalled how he had finished playing football that morning and had been picked up by his dad before they drove into the estate and saw the horror unfold. Andrew recalled, I'll never forget seeing Sartin walking towards two kids around my age and the people at the bottom of the street screaming for him not to shoot them. Luckily, he walked straight past them. Looking back, I probably didn't realise the danger we were all in. Each time I see a shooting in America, it brings back the memories. I always wonder what would have happened if my dad had just driven the car straight into him. I think for a long time people were shocked and stunned that it happened. The gunshot marks were still on the doors of some of the houses affected for months. How would you even begin? to try and come to terms with events so terrible. Following the shootings, a counselling service was installed on the first floor of Monk Seaton Public Library, where specially trained social workers 
who'd counselled survivors of the Bradford Football Stadium fire, and just some weeks before the Hillsborough tragedy, were on hand at all times to offer support and listening to those affected by the event and who were wanting and needing to talk about it. The community came together and offered both support and sympathy to those affected, not just to the family of Ken McIntosh, his widow Pam or his children Debbie and Roger, not just to people like Robert Wilson, Brian Toms and Jean Miller, those badly injured in the shootings, but to the parents of Robert Sartin also, who not only had the same grief and bewilderment about why this had happened, but also the guilt and shame that with the best will in the world, must to an extent go with being a relation of someone who commits such an atrocity. In the press statement following his son's court appearance, Brian added, I want to say how desperately sorry we are for people, Mrs. McIntosh, her children, the people who've been injured, the people who've been terrified. We can only feel for them. Obviously, we think about our son, but they've definitely got our sympathies. Our hearts go out to them all, they really do. On Sunday, we left Robert in bed and took him an enormous breakfast of eggs and sausages. We left him in bed reading the papers, as happy as anything. He was going out for the morning as he was due to meet his young lady for lunch, a lovely girl, at about one o'clock. They were going to have lunch together and go out for the afternoon. Everything was normal. Life was great. He got things planned. Something happened between the time we left Robert and the time this happened. Something happened inside his head, but we don't know what. You wouldn't even know how difficult something like that must be to come out with, would you? For Brian as well, he had the added guilt to carry around with him that the shotgun Sartin had used to commit his atrocity had been his, Brian's own legally registered, personal weapon. As a former Royal Navy Petty Officer and following his discharge, employment as a weapons coordinator for Swan Hunter warship builders on the River Tyne, Brian had always held a keen interest in weaponry and he explained to the press that he'd been a member of a Whitley Bay shooting club, although stressed that the club merely shot at clay pigeons and static targets. Strictly never game. On the odd occasion, Robert had accompanied his father there to shoot with him, with Brian describing him, and surely, in his grief, not grasping the sense of the occasion, as quite a good little shot. From that moment on, Brian Sartin swore never to touch a weapon again. Robert had last gone shooting with his father a week before the shootings on the 22nd of April and reportedly had enjoyed himself whilst doing so, having shot quite well, in his father's words. However, these father-son shooting trips were very few and far between, plus Robert had never expressed any desire to have his own weapon, instead preferring quieter pastimes such as reading, which was more of his perceived nature. Shooting at a gun club would more likely have been the chosen pastime of Robert's older brother Andrew, who had followed his father's example, and was at the time a serving Royal Naval Officer, holding the position of weapons coordinator on HMS Ark Royal. His brother's actions equally made no sense to a devastated Andrew, as he was quoted in the press after he joined his family up in Monkseaton, as saying, All I can say is that he's such a loving and caring lad. 
and the next-door neighbour of the Sartins, Harry Stevenson, added, You couldn't hope to meet a more pleasant young man. The town amongst Seaton would disagree with you there, I think, Harry, especially the fourteen he'd left maimed in his wake, and the family of the one fatality, Ken McIntosh. The inquest into the death of Ken McIntosh was opened at Blythe Coroner's Court on the 4th of May, where the Deputy North Tyneside Coroner, Eric Armstrong, read post-mortem examination evidence from Home Office pathologist Dr Harvey McTaggart, some great names in this episode or what I think, which indicated that Mr McIntosh was first disabled by two shots fired from some distance as he walked along Windsor Road. He was then fired on twice at close range as he lay wounded and helpless, said the pathologist's report, and died from the rupture of his heart and aorta caused by shotgun wounds. Either of the shots could have caused his death, the report concluded. Adjourning the inquest, Mr Armstrong told the court that he'd been advised that Robert James Sartin had appeared before North Shields magistrates charged with murdering Mr McIntosh and remanded in custody due to make his next court appearance on May the 30th. The following day, Friday the 5th of May, a testament to just how popular and highly thought of the murdered man was, was demonstrated at his funeral, held at Monk Seton Methodist Church, in which some 500 mourners flocked to the service, the church's 200-person capacity soon filled. As his broken-hearted widow Pam sat flanked by the couple's two children, Debbie and Roger, the Reverend Ron Morris gave a moving address to the congregation, himself holding back tears for the loss of a parishioner and a personal friend, before recounting how Pam had described Ken as, He's my husband, but I share him with all of you. The Reverend then recounted the several ways in which Ken had devoted his life to helping others, as a good and approachable boss, as an assistant scout leader at St Peter's, where to many he was known as Uncle Ken, someone who could always be counted on if there was a job to do, as a committed Christian, as a helpful and involved parishioner, as a good neighbour and friend, and most importantly, as a devoted husband, father and grandfather. Tragically, just four weeks before, Debbie had given birth to Pam and Ken's first grandchild a child who in the four weeks had been alive, no one had doted on more than Ken had. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? The Reverend Morris then told the congregation of the hundreds of letters of sympathy and support that the Macintosh family had received, and selected one to read out loud. It was a letter that had been sent to the Monk Seaton community as a collective by the mayor of another town, one who could empathise all too well with the people of Monkseaton, Ivy Wells, the Mayor of Hungerford. In it she wrote, It is with great feeling that I write to express Hungerford's deepest sympathy to you all in Monkseaton. It is unbelievable that this has happened again, and there are no words that can take the pain away. We know what you're going through, and the thoughts and prayers of Hungerford are with you at this sad and devastating time. I know you will gain much strength from the people in your close community. Hungerford, of course, needs no introduction, does it? 
but the overall feeling throughout every resident, aside from grief and the stunned reaction of the town to Sartin's rampage, was perhaps summed up in the words written to him on the wreaths from his two children. Debbie's message read, I'm still asking why, but still no reply. Whilst Rogers wrote on the card, atop the miniature snooker table floral tribute that reflected another of his father's passions, I love you, Dad. All my love. P.S. Why? Why indeed, eh? It was the burning question on everyone's minds. On the 30th of May 1989, Robert James Sartin was further charged with 17 counts of attempted murder at a brief appearance at North Shields Magistrates in Tyne and Weir, although it was to be his last for several months. At the time, it was decreed that Sartin and all counsel concerned had offered no objection for him being further remanded in custody in his absence. In fact, it had been decreed this was for his own benefit. For Sartin by that time was no longer on remand in HMP Durham. He'd been moved to the high security former Park Lane Hospital in McGull in Merseyside, which is more commonly known today as Ashworth Hospital. The picture of Robert James Sartin that began to emerge in the days following the shooting was of that of a somewhat polarising figure. There was the Sartin that was as his mother, father, brother and neighbours described, a gentle, kind-hearted, if somewhat introverted young man. The nicest guy you would ever meet was a description used more than once. Quiet and inoffensive was another. This Sartin, although much preferring to be indoors reading, had just spent £150 on a gym membership in an effort to improve his physique, would occasionally accompany his father to the local pub, the Beacon, in South Wellfield, to play snooker, would sometimes, as we've said, go shooting with him, and had only three months previously begun a relationship with the daughter of a police officer, Virginia Rutter, whom he'd met through his mother's employment at a local grocery store. This Sartin was the thoughtful son who would, who would chivalrously walk his girlfriend home each night without fail, the Sartin who was described as pleasant, loving and caring. And then there was the other side to Robert Sartin, perhaps best summed up by an account from a former teacher of his at Whitley Bay High School, where he'd attended up until 1986. He'd once written in a report about Sartin, he radiates malice. He gives the distinct impression of biding his time upon what action or event, I could not say. Well, he pretty much bloody demonstrated, didn't he? Sartin's former teacher said later, describing when he heard about the rampage, I thought, that'll be Robert Sartin's doing. When I heard of the gunman's arrest, I had a feeling it would be him. I wasn't surprised when it was confirmed. Robert was decidedly a very odd character. Odd would be a bit of an understatement, really. There were no reports of any problems through Sartin's primary schooling, but by the time he started secondary school, Whitley Bay High School in 1978, worrying signs were definitely already there. Asked for a composition piece in his first year to describe his interests, the 11-year-old Sartin wrote, Shooting, reading, collecting things to do with the occult, and torturing the cat. 
He'd already by this age begun collecting literature about Nazism, torture, the occult, and was soon proudly identifying himself as a proud Satanist and a devil worshipper. He was not bullied as such in school, but his attitude and demeanour won him few friends. People tended to steer clear of him because he was so odd. In fact, a persistent and of course foundless rumour abounded at the time was that he could actually practice black magic and playing up to the image he cultivated and loved would actually spend time making effigies of teachers at the school which he would bring in and show off to people before horribly maiming or scarring the effigies. He would also tell everyone to drop the R out of his name proclaiming himself Satan. Well, it's Satin really, isn't it? But that isn't a f really a Forces of Darkness kind of name. It sounds more like a shit gladiator. So a leap, but Satan it was. He even signed off some of his schoolwork with this moniker. Now already your spidey sense would be off the charts there then, wouldn't it? It's a proper start of Ironside moment that, isn't it? But there were other incidents throughout the years of his schooling that gave teachers cause for concern. In July 1981, a report from his religious education teacher described Sartin's work as, I quote, being unnecessarily full of Satanism, yeah, you can have too much devil-like, whilst his English report from the following year described a pupil who was too interested in violence or the occult to answer questions in a straightforward manner. It was reports like this that had led to Sartin in August 1982 being referred to an educational psychologist, to whom he offered the information that he had on occasion daydreamed about killing his parents after voices had told him to do so. The psychologist was disturbed by this, along with the reports from Sartin's teachers and his large collection of books about murder, Nazis, torture of women, and which had grown over years to reflect Sartin's interest in psychiatric matters and had referred him to a psychiatrist. However, this psychiatrist, who didn't see Sartin in person, but merely read the report on him, claimed that there was nothing wrong with him. Oh yes, so nothing was done, when I don't know what better indications you could possibly get that something bloody seriously was wrong with him. And so Sartin continued in this vein. His vested interest in black magic and the occult continued, and he now began maintaining a detailed diary of mass murderers whilst his schoolwork regularly contained detailed accounts of such delightful subjects as cannibalism, satanic rituals, and the inferiority of women, and in 1986, he wrote a lengthy essay entitled Dangerous Minds, in which he recounted the lives and crimes of infamous British killers Ian Brady, Patrick McKay, and Graham Young. Podcast episodes before the pod existed there. Sartin did obtain eight CSE grades at school and for a short period attended the sixth form there, studying A-level art. However, you can kind of imagine what his art mainly depicted, can't you? And after he failed his exams, he dropped out of schooling. He worked for a short period in the role of assistant caretaker at his former high school, before in early 1987, he obtained a position at the Department of Social Security offices in Blythe. Here, although his colleagues noted his preference to dress constantly in black, they considered him overall to be quiet and inoffensive, approachable and competent with his work. 
At home, although his mother and father had of course been aware of the issues Robert had had in school, they put this down to a simple phase he'd gone through. As we've heard before in episodes of the show, black magic and an obsession with the forces of darkness was a bit of a popular fad in the late 70s and early 80s. And so what if he had a library full of books about death and murder? Bloody hell, I can't talk, you should see mine. In fact, I think you can do, because I'm sure I've before now shared pictures of it on the show's Instagram page. If they were ever concerned about things such as Robert's obsessive showering, so often and for so long would he be in that his family ended up having to install a second shower at home, or the films Robert would rent from the local video store, things like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I think was actually banned at the time, but you always knew someone who could get things like that. A fellow used to come around with a video van in my village, and he had all sorts. If he didn't have it, it wasn't worth watching, and he could get pretty much anything you want to see. So if they were worried about this, then they never raised it with him. They may have considered him a bit of an introvert, sure, leading to his father encouraging him to accompany him to play snooker or go shooting with him, to perhaps bring him out of himself a bit, and they must have been elated when he started a relationship with Virginia. He started talking about changing his car. He joined a gym and began seeing friends from time to time. Because after all, it takes some people that much longer than others, doesn't it? What they didn't know what Robert was also doing, at least what he claimed to police he'd been doing following his arrest after his rampage, was following people about at night whilst armed with a large hunting knife. Though he candidly told police officers he would always turn back without acting upon this, and in the face of his frank confessions, plus no unsolved stabbings that could be tied to him, they were inclined to believe him. His parents also did not know that less than two weeks before the Monk Seaton shootings, Robert had visited his local GP, claiming to be worried and concerned about his impotence and his lack of sexual interest. For three months into his and Virginia's relationship, it had still not become a sexual one. When his doctor asked him how long he'd felt like this, Robert told him he'd not felt anything inside since he was 17 or 18. But though he may not have felt anything, he'd certainly heard something. Several things. Several voices. The voices had come to Robert at a young age, probably in his early teens, and had continued with him for several years. They had faded for a while, but at the end of 1987, they'd returned, with one voice now stronger than the others, which was to become the predominant one. The voice of Michael. Now Robert came to know Michael's voice well, but he claimed he couldn't put a face to the voice, until he went to the video shop one day. The title he'd rented when he placed it into the video recorder soon showed him who Michael was, for it was the character he saw before him on screen. The character was Michael Myers, and the film was Halloween. Soon, Robert had become obsessed with it. He would watch it regularly, and even bought a tape of the soundtrack to play in his car. It relaxed him, he claimed. Now, I love John Carpenter's music from his films, but I don't know about it being relaxing, really. Earlier on the morning of the shootings, a friend of Robert's, Steve Atkinson, had been around to briefly visit the Sartin household, and later described Robert as being absolutely fine, almost elated. 
His parents, as we heard before, had taken him breakfast in bed after Steve had left and also found him cheerful, normal, enjoying reading the Sunday papers that Steve had dropped off. He told them that that afternoon he was seeing Virginia and they were off out together for some lunch. He'd even waved his mum and dad off as they set off to visit friends in Yorkshire. And then, sometime that Sunday morning in April 1989, Michael had come to him and for Robert Sartin, things would never be the same again. Nor would it be for so many people in Monk Seaton. But the shooter would never stand trial for his horrifying crimes. Sartin was still being held in Park Lane Special Hospital, deemed seriously ill, when Newcastle Crown Court was convened on Monday the 30th of April 1990, coincidentally the first anniversary of the shootings, in a hearing to see if he was fit to plead. David Robson QC, prosecuting, told the court. He tended to dress in black, he had a great interest in horror and the occult, and he acquired a reputation for having occult powers. His interest led to the nickname Satan. He said Sartin had told police after his arrest that he'd been directed to carry out the shootings by the voice of Michael, a homicidal maniac in the horror film Halloween. He'd told them, I used to imagine this guy just like a fantasy figure, but he was kind of like me. I used to draw pictures of him with bodies everywhere. David Robson continued, That is the first introduction we get of another figure who is perhaps Sartin, or perhaps someone else who he imagines inhabits his mind. As the interviews progressed, there emerged a picture of a man called Michael, and Michael seems to have taken on a name after the defendant saw a film called Halloween, a horror film in which a character called Michael figures. It seems when someone is suffering from schizophrenia, almost as if another person comes to inhabit the man, another person who issues demands, and another person who tells one side of the mind to do what the other side says. The court had previously heard evidence from a doctor who had been assessing Sartin, Dr. Marion Swan, who told the court that he was suffering from a major psychotic illness, a rare, extremely acute and severe schizophrenia. Hearing voices, Dr. Swan had said, was a symptom of this condition, for which there was no cure. Further, it was likely that this was a condition in Sartin which had gone unrecognised and untreated for several years, possibly as far back as age 13. Defending, James Chadwin QC told the jury that an unfit-to-plead verdict would by no means be a soft option, however, saying, There are two possibilities. One is, sadly, that he will never be cured of his present mental illness, <clears throat> and therefore never stand trial and will remain indefinitely where he is. The other possibility is that he will make progress and reach a stage where he is regarded as fit by doctors to stand trial, and it will be the duty of the doctor to report such a development to the Home Office. He will then be liable to stand trial, being under no illusion about that. This is not a happy end for Robert Sartin. It might be that there is no happy ending for him, but that is not what is relevant. What is relevant is what is right in law. At 11.18am, the jury of seven women and five men were sent out to deliberate 
returning four hours later with a majority verdict of 10 to 2 that Sartin was indeed unfit to plead and so unfit for trial. Mr Justice Waite presiding then ordered that Sartin be returned to Park Lane Hospital without length of time which he was not present in court to hear doctors successfully pleading that to do so would not be medically beneficial for Sartin. That was effectively to be the last that the world heard of Robert Sartin for another six years. Virginia corresponded with him for a period of time before the letters trailed off and she made a new life for herself, raising a family. His parents and brother did visit him, but ultimately, the shame and devastation that this son had brought proved too much for them to stay in the community they'd lived in for so long, and they moved to Scotland, changing their names by deed poll. He featured scarcely in the press over the years following his rampage, usually only referred to when a list of occupants of Ashworth Hospital, as it became known, was published in the press in regards to some scandal or other concerning it. It would make for a good episode on its own Ashworth, and you never know what may pop up here in the future. Massive wink there. One point to note that did crop up concerning him in one of these Ashworth articles, was in 1994 how he was supposed to be dating a fellow patient in Ashworth, a 24-year-old attempted murderess with a fixation for blondes who had tried to strangle two nurses during a time there and how staff allowed them to pet, perhaps even allowed them conjugal rights at times. Yeah, we should definitely do an Ashworth episode. But by 1996, Sartin had been deemed by examining doctors as finally declared fit to be arraigned and on Thursday the 23rd of May 1996, more than seven years after his rampage, Sartin appeared at Durham Crown Court, his first public court appearance in that time frame also and where, flanked by staff as he stood in the dock wearing a dark jacket with pale flecks and a plain tie, in a faltering voice he answered, not guilty by reason of insanity to each charge that was put to him. It was a plea that the prosecution accepted and before Mr Justice Kennedy brought proceedings to a close, sending Sartin to a secure unit for life, Defence Counsel James Chadwin QC produced a handwritten note by the defendant, an apology. It reads, Apologising for the terrible offences I carried out on April 30th, 1989 will not help the family of the innocent man I killed or ease the memories of all the people I hurt. What I want my victims and the family of Mr McIntosh to know is that their awful pain was not the result of a planned or intended crime and there was no pleasure involved. It was completely the product of a mental illness so severe that reality was taken over by insanity. All I want to say to everyone involved in this tragedy, the people on the legal side, the police, my family, and all whose lives I affected, is I am so very sorry. Mr Justice Kennedy then ordered that Sartin should spend the rest of his life in a secure hospital, explaining to him, You will not be released because I make an order that you should be detained without limit of time. There is no question that this tragedy came about because you were, as you remain, a gravely ill man. 29-year-old Sartin showed no emotion in the dock and said nothing as he was taken down into the cells below the court 
before he was returned to Ashworth Hospital. Following the verdict, a statement from Debbie McIntosh, the daughter of the man Sarton had killed, was read at a news conference by police. In it, she said that her father, I quote, loved his work and took a great deal of pride in it. He was a man who took pride in everything he did, from playing snooker to DIY, from helping with your homework to running the local youth club. He was kind, intelligent, funny, and he loved his family more than anything in the world. That love has kept us sane throughout this seven years of hell, and that love will keep us strong throughout our future, it added. Robert Sartin's parents, Brian and Joan, also issued a statement through their lawyer, in which they once again expressed their sympathy for the victims. The statement also added, It is clear from the reports of psychiatrists eminent in this field that Robert was of unsound mind. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? In the year after the shootings, a cherry tree, organised by his friends and with the blessing of his widow Pam, was planted at Monk Seaton Methodist Church with a simple plaque that reads, In memory of Ken McIntosh, 1989. Nice gesture, that. What Pam and Ken's friends were less impressed with, were horrified about actually, was the fact that in November 1990, just over 18 months after the shootings, Newcastle breweries caused controversy when one of the questions on a scratch card sent out by them to patrons of pubs in the northeast, including the Monk Seaton Arms, that offered as part of its centenary celebrations a chance for a correct answer to be entered into drawers for £4,000 prizes or to win free drinks, contained the question, Who ran amok with a shotgun in Whitley Bay in 1989 and offered the answers, Brady, Kelly, or Bell? Yes, seriously. As you can imagine, this upset and disgusted many of the pub regulars, some who'd known Ken, as it was thought insensitive in the wake of the trauma that many of the victims were still going through at the time, both physical and emotional. Newcastle Breweries later apologised for this and came out with some cock and bollocks story about it slipping through the net, but the damage was done and several patrons boycotted Newcastle Brewery products as a result. Crap like that doesn't help anyone, does it? In the years that followed the shootings, most of the witnesses and residents have simply tried to push it to the back of their minds. Monk Seaton never publicly marks the anniversary of its most infamous day, for to anyone who stops to think about it, it is as surreal now as it was more than three decades ago. Dave Shoulder said, Now, people just can't believe that it happened in an area like this. It was totally out of everyone's experience. Afterwards, there was a real coming together. People wanted to support each other. I think most people have come to terms with it now. It was a long time ago, and they realised he was very disturbed. Robert Wilson, meanwhile, who still has countless pellets embedded in his body from the shooting, still ruse how lucky he was to survive, and observed that if Sartin had been tried and found guilty, then most likely he would have been released from prison by now, saying, There's not many who get shot by a double-barrel shotgun at close range and survive. He was a coward shooting when my back was turned. 
He may have only killed one, but he ruined the lives of many others. He never stood trial, and if he had, he'd be out by now. He's where he should be. Robert Sartin remains a patient in Ashworth Hospital to this very day. Now aged 54, he is unlikely to ever be released. This account of the Monk Seaton shootings was one that I looked at for an episode last year, although the mass shootings I opted for then were those of Napoleon Green in Kent and the Red Gables massacre up in Penmine Mower, although I think I might have hinted in that episode, The Airman and the Commander, that another case I'd selected had narrowly missed out, but would be coming in some form. It was at one point even considered as a chapter for the book, and I brought it to you today. Isn't this a tale that you must be gobsmacked is as unfamiliar as it is? Perhaps it doesn't have the body count of Hungerford or Dunblane, for example, but it's no less horrific than either at all. I hope that the events I've recounted speak for themselves. And yet, whilst those two, along with Cumbria, make up the canonical three that spring to mind when you think of mass shootings here in the UK, Monk Seaton is largely a forgotten one which is exactly what we strive to change here on The Enthusiast. Now one aspect that has long been debated about the Monk Seaton shootings I found through researching is the identity of the Michael whose voice Sartin claimed to hear. I must stress here, I don't for a second believe that any of that was made up by him. He indeed clearly was for many years leading up to 1989 and must be still today an extremely ill individual. But what I believe is more likely is that the identity of Michael was not Michael Myers, the killer from Halloween, but rather that of Michael Ryan, the perpetrator of the Hungerford Massacre. There are a couple of points that would serve to support this. Firstly, if I'm being really anal here, then Michael Myers doesn't bloody speak at all in Halloween, does he? Secondly, perhaps more tellingly, the summer before the shootings, in August 1988, Sartin had been to visit his grandmother in the town of Weymouth in Dorset for a few days, and on his return journey home, had taken a slight detour to Hungerford, where he'd spent an hour walking around the town. Now add this to the voices he'd already been hearing for several years up until then, the obsession that he had with accounts of murder, death, torture, you name it, and the fact that he had access to a shotgun and ammunition, and was quite a good little shot in the words of his father and it isn't a massive jump really to believe that Sartin, an obsessive character by all reports, had actually become obsessed with the crimes of Michael Ryan rather than fictional killer Michael Myers. Had he brooded upon this for months, his mental health declining rapidly until one morning it took these factors and the film of Halloween to cause him to suddenly snap and become almost an automaton, leaving countless lives changed forever in 20 minutes of madness and one lost. I don't know for sure, but I believe it more likely myself personally. And if it is so, then in a strange coincidence, it will be the second account of a killer that we featured here on The Enthusiast that has acted due to an obsession with the Hungerford Massacre after the crimes of Kevin Weaver that I covered way back when in the first series of the show, in the episode One Man's Fatal Obsession. 
Gun control is the one subject that the widow of Ken McIntosh has ever felt able to publicly discuss the murder of her husband concerning. Pam, along with her friend Vicky Gilbert and Sartin's first victim of that Sunday morning, Judith Rhodes, in the wake of the shootings set up the campaign group Campaign Against Weapons Sale and Storage, CAUS, lobbying for tighter gun laws here in the UK, never wanting an atrocity like theirs to ever happen again. Over the years, they've offered through statements public sympathy to the families of those affected by Dunblane, Cumbria, and several of the US mass shootings, including Columbine, Sandy Hook, the list goes on. In the UK today, gun ownership is strictly controlled. Certificates, renewable every five years, must be applied for. Verified photographic evidence of identity must be provided to be granted any such certificate, and for firearm certificates, two personal references are required. There are also numerous exclusion criteria. For example, anyone sentenced to prison for three years or more can never own any gun, including those for which no certificate is required, such as air guns and antiques or ammunition, while a suspended sentence of three months or more invokes a similar prohibition for five years. Furthermore, Certificates may be refused on the grounds of any offence or police intelligence that possibly indicates irresponsibility, including arrests, police call-outs and imprudent posts on social media. Domestic violence incidents are treated particularly seriously and no convictions of any kind are considered spent. But even with strict-sounding criteria such as this, people still do slip through the gaps and every few years, an atrocity such as this happens, much as it did in Plymouth late last year. And each time it does, it must bring back horror and heartache for Pam and her family, and for all of those affected by Sartin's rampage. Pam, a largely private person, was quoted in the one public statement she's ever made, shortly after Sartin had been incarcerated, as saying, I'm a private person, but I want people to know what horrors guns can cause. There have been times when I've thought if Sartin came to me now, I'd be capable of killing him with my own two hands, but I know I'm not that type of person. He's living the life of Riley in prison, and he's never faced trial. My husband only saw one of his grandchildren. It's guns that have taken that away from him. How can I forgive that? How indeed. What do you guys think? I would love as ever to hear your thoughts and feedback on the tale of Robert Sartin and his rampage in the episode Shooter on a Sunday Morning, which you can do wherever you like really, in the episode thread that for it that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media links. Hey, you can even find the bloody elephant and tell him and send him round to me to tell me, because he won't forget to. If you feel that you'd like to also, a review of the show is always much appreciated to help it get up in those charts somewhat. So if you'd like to, then I thank you in advance. With that, I shall wrap up here then and I shall be back with you very soon for another instalment. It's really good to be back. I can't express how much it is, guys. I thank you kindly for joining me here today. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, 
and goodbye for now.